today's scripture reading is from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not get a dog's what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're going to be looking in depth at that uh, text that Josh just read. First, I uh, want to go in prayer, and uh, as you know, uh, we live stream our services every Sunday. Uh, folks, um, wherever they are that can't be here on a Sunday morning are, are streaming, and uh, in particular, we want to be thinking about uh, the uh, the Yan family that are traveling back from Topeka. Got a note from them this morning that uh, they're traveling back from Kansas to Texas and are going to be streaming us live while they're on the road. So we want to pray for both hands on the wheel, and we want to pray for safety and for fellowship. <laughs> Father, we're grateful for this day. You are so wonderful to have given us this day that is bright. That is, that is lovely beyond our ability to describe it. And it's in being in your creation on a beautiful day like this that gives us such tremendous joy. But even greater than that joy, Father, of standing in your creation and recognizing your power and your nature is the joy that comes when we find ourselves in your presence as your children and we lift up our voices to you and we say thank you and we love you And we worship you. You are the center of our life. You are the center of the universe. You are the center of all things. And there is nothing higher or more precious than you. We are grateful for every opportunity we have to experience you in this way. And as we think about how to live as your people in this community, we pray that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear the text in such a way that we become this beautiful, disruptive presence in our culture and in our city. In this we pray with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. And everyone said. So a fellow by the name of Arthur Brooks. He recently published a book. It's a non-religious book, even though it has a religious title. And it's called Love Your Enemies. And in it, uh, Arthur Brooks uh, is, is kind of a philosopher, uh, researcher, public thinker, type of, of, of uh, academic in the United States. And uh, in this book, Love Your Enemies, he, he quotes an article or cites an article from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It sounds like an exciting read. And he cites in this article the phenomenon of the motive attribution asymmetry phenomena in the United States, which basically says that whatever it is that becomes a part of your ideology, whatever is a part of your worldview, your your value system, whatever you think about the world at large, you think that that comes from love and your opponent's ideology comes from hate. So the quote that I want to read to you from the book goes like this. 
The researchers found that a majority of Republicans and Democrats today suffer from a level of motive attribution asymmetry that is comparable to that of Palestinians and Israelis. People often characterize the current moment as being angry. I wish that were true because anger tends to be self-limiting. Motive attribution asymmetry doesn't lead to anger because it doesn't want you to repair the relationship. Believing your opponent is motivated by hate leads to something far worse, contempt. End of quote. Uh, Another writer in the area of philosophy and sociology is, uh, and you may have read some of his books, A Calling of the American Mind uh, is most recent, one that he wrote um, uh, during the last election was entitled The Righteous Mind. And what he does in The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt, is to describe how that contempt moves in our culture. And basically he narrows it down to four steps. He says basically you hear something that you don't like or that you disagree with. So number one, you marshal all of the arguments against what was said. Number two, you marshal all, all the arguments that, that support your position. Number three, because of the arguments against his and for yours, he must be a bad person because he doesn't agree with you. Leading to number four, because he is a bad person, he must be hated like an enemy. And it's hate that has coined the term in our culture right now that if you have an opponent, you typically refer to him as the extremist. Now, it's not just politics and religion. I mean, that happens on the evening news every day, the, the, the tweets that come out. We see that culture of contempt wherever we go. But it's not just the politics. It's not just the religion where contempt is seen. We run into it every day. Think about driving in San Antonio. Uh, recently, I pulled out of a parking lot out on Redland Road. And, you know, Redland Road, people can drive a little fast. And so I pull out of the parking lot. At the same time, a car is coming around the bend pretty fast. He changed lanes to go around me, passed me. And as he passed me, he pulled into the lane in front of me and expressed his contempt for my driving. And he was really adept at this. He expressed it with one little finger on his right hand. So how do salt and light kingdom of God people live in a culture of contempt? Jesus has already been teaching us all along how to do it, right? Number one, you deal with the anger that's in your heart. You recognize that you live a blessed life in the kingdom of God. You learn how to reconcile with people. You learn how to not objectify people, whether sexually or economically, politically, or whatever it might be. You think about how you use your words. On certain occasions, you turn the other cheek or you go the extra mile. All the time, you love your enemy and you pray for those that persecute you. In other words, in a culture like ours, the disciples of Jesus, who the kingdom of God blessing has come inside, live their life as a beautiful, disruptive presence for the kingdom of God in a culture like this. And in our text today, and in our culture, Jesus speaks these words. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. I love the way the King Jimmy just kind of cuts to the chase. King James says, judge 
not. Let's say that together. Judge not. And in our text, he's going to give us three angles in which to think and to see and to practice this idea of judging not. It begins with a clarification. We're going to look at the consequences of not heeding his teaching. And then number three, what is the cure for the heart that really wants to traffic in, in, in contempt? Let's begin with clarification. Question, what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge or you too will be judged? On the judgment continuum, those that are on the far left say that you can't quote anyone or you can't condemn anyone. And they quote Hosea chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus says and the prophets say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Those on the far right quote quote Jesus just 10 verses later in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, by their fruit you will recognize them. So on the far right, hey, you're going to see uh, something bad. You call it for what it is. On the far left, it's, it's not about the sacrifice and the rules. It's about mercy. Somewhere in between is the answer. So again, what does he mean? The word judgment or judge is one of those words. It's like world in the Bible. It can mean a number of things. There's a wide semantic range. It can refer to things like technical legal decision to judge gave a judgment on that case. It can be a technical legal decision. It can also mean things like reaching conclusions or or reaching um, uh, ideas about people and things. Jumping, not just jumping to a conclusion, but coming to a conclusion in sort of a positive way. None of these are wrong or bad in themselves. So what is it that Jesus is banning when he says, judge not? The interpretive key, I think, is found in the middle of the text, where in verse 5, Jesus refers to hypocrites. You hypocrite. What Jesus is referencing is the unjust and incongruent actions of people who have received mercy, not not extending that mercy to others. That people who have received grace, not extending that grace to others. People who have come out from under a great judgment, holding a great judgment over others. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable about a servant who owed a debt that he could never repay. It's just millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he goes before the king to whom he owes the debt, and he begs for mercy. And the king says, okay, I'm going to forgive the debt. It's wiped clean. The servant is happy. He's, you know, hip-hopping out of the front door of the palace when he runs into a guy that owes him some lunch money and, you know, money for a Coca-Cola out of the Coke machine. And that guy has owed him money for a couple of days and he hasn't paid it back. So he grabs that guy and he begins to shake him and he begins to beat him and he begins to choke him and he throws, you know, he's just ruining his reputation over the price of a Coke. Well, the people that see this, they think that that is the most ridiculous thing they've ever seen. They're infuriated by it. They go to the king, they tell the king about it, and he becomes furious. And he has the servant who had this monstrous debt, forgiven and canceled, thrown into prison. And as he's being marched off to the cell, the king says, Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, For in the same way you judge others, 
you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. People who have received abundant mercy, who have received extraordinary abundant mercy from God, should become experts in progress at extending mercy to other people. I mean, it's so easy. I just think about how easy it is to turn judgment, that is discernment, into something judgmental. We turn discernment into disdain. We, we nurture the seed of condemnation in our heart. We gossip a person into the dirt. We will sit on the other side of a large auditorium in order to not interact with a brother or sister whom we have judged to be irredeemably bad. Now, in this teaching, Jesus is not saying that we give up knowing the difference between right and wrong. That we give up knowing the difference between what is righteous and unrighteous, or what is true and what is false. What he is is teaching us to do, instructing us to do, is to abandon the deeply rooted and ancient human practice of condemning others. Ah, that goes. That is one of the most ancient things that you will find in the Bible. You have Genesis 1 and 2, right? Here's God creating the heavens and the earth. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It's good, good, good. Everything is wonderful. Human beings are thriving. Only one thing not to do. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Serpent comes. You know the story. Eve eats. Eve gives to Adam. Adam eats. They both realize that they're naked. They're hiding from God. God comes in the cool of the morning. To, and they're hiding And he finds out what has happened. And he says to Adam, is this true? Out of of all of the things that I, I told you you could do, the one thing I told you you couldn't do and shouldn't do, you did. And what does Adam do? Well, this woman that you gave me, that you gave me, the woman, it's her fault she started it. It's ancient. The human practice of condemning. In the kingdom of God, we become the kind of person who does not condemn others. And Paul takes this teaching to the church in Rome where he says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. What Paul is trying to help them to understand is that if you were, just imagine if you're the only person on this planet. The whole earth is yours. You're the only person on it. Guess what? Even if you're the only person, nobody else, you're all alone. You're the one person on this planet. Guess what? Jesus still has to die on the cross for you. So why do you treat others with contempt? Which brings us now to the consequence. It is a principle of life in the kingdom of God that you... That how you live is a reflection of what you have received. Already in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Here, he says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, It will be measured to you. People who have become disciples of Jesus have been forgiven 
and they become as disciples of Jesus forgivers. Those that have received mercy extend mercy because they're merciful people. They, they've received generously from heaven and they become generous. And what Jesus is teaching is that the opposite is true as well. Which brings us to the cure. Jesus uses a little humor here to drive the point home. It's Jewish humor. Uh, we don't catch it in our modern uh, taste for humor. But he's using humor to drive the point home. And it's the picture of a guy with a telephone pole sticking out of his eye trying to get a speck of dust out of someone else's eye. It's a ridiculous scene, and that's the point. And as Jesus is talking about this, people are there on the side of the mountain. They're just rolling on the ground laughing. You know, stop it, Jesus, you're killing me. But he's making the point. Look at your own life. There's a telephone pole hanging out of your eye. Why are you trying to focus on the speck of dust in the eye of a brother or sister? Does your own personal life give you any justification to sit in judgment of someone else? Jesus would say it another way in John 8. He would say, let any of you who is without sin be the first cast to throw the first stone. So this is something we have to work on. Let me give you four things. Number one, be brutally honest about your own life. Be brutally honest about your own life. See the log that is hanging out of your own eye, or at least admit the possibility that there might be one. Far too often we condemn in others the weaknesses that we dare not face up to in our own lives. You know what we need to do right now? Turn to the person next to you in the pew and say, you know what, I've got a log in my eye. Turn to the next person next to you and say, I've got a log in my eye. Yeah, see, you get it. It's funny, right? Hey, did, did anybody notice that when you admitted that you had a log in your eye, nobody died? It's okay to be brutally honest about your own life. In Psalm 19, David says, Who can discern their own errors? <coughs> Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, that they may not rule over me. And then number two. Listen carefully, please, please, please. Understand that correcting others is not for everyone. Just because you're a member of our church does not give you the right to barge, barge. You know what I mean by that, right? To barge into somebody's life and to correct them. Not everyone gets to correct the faults of others. Paul will say to the church in Galatia that was just chewing each other up, he would say it this way, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person, what? Gently. But watch yourselves, or you might also be tempted too. Number three, cheer for honest people. Cheer for honest people. Our church should be known in this community for being a place where people can be honest about their life. Amen? I mean, there's, there's an invitation that we give at the end of every assembly, at the end of the sermon. And there are a lot of times when 
when I, folk just want to be able to say, I need help, that I, I need prayers, I, I need help, I need prayers, I need, I need community, I need solidarity, I need counsel, I need wisdom, I need all of these things to get my life back on track. I just need somebody to, to stand beside me, just any, any number of things. But they won't do it. But they won't do it publicly because they feel they will be judged. We ought to cheer people for their honesty. We should cheer people when they say, you know what? I do have a log in my own eye and I need to deal with it and I need help. I can't do this on my own. When, when someone hears MacArthur Park Church of Christ, they should immediately think of a group of radically humble, non-judgmental, truth-in-love-speaking, grace-offering, misfit-embracing, honesty-honoring, Jesus-following, God-worshipping people of a crazy, unheard-of acceptance. Man, I, I, I am so glad that heaven is a big place. And that, I think, is what the dog and pig passage is about. I'll talk about that right now. Uh, you know, you hear all kinds of uh, interpretations and, uh, you know, explanations as to what that text means. And, you know, people are saying, you know, the dogs represent this and the pigs represent that. I mean, he just said six verses prior to that, do not judge. And now we have Jesus calling somebody, referring to somebody as a pig. I think that that is not the way Jesus meant that to be understood. I think it's a wisdom statement about how things don't go together. A Christian and judgment, being judgmental, I mean, being judgmental and being a disciple of Jesus do not go together any more than giving a dog something that is sacred. Being judgmental and being a disciple of Jesus does not go together any more than putting pearls on a pig. We might say it in today's vernacular as putting lipstick on a pig. The pig doesn't care about jewelry. The pig cares only about its next meal, even if it's you. I'll tell you another story about pulling out in front of somebody in traffic. Um... It was at the HEB at Brook Hollow, uh, had just uh, bought a couple of things, heading back to the house, pulled out in front of somebody, didn't even see him, didn't see him, and uh, pulled out in front of him. I want you to know, there's only been two times in my entire life that I've pulled in, out in front of people. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I pulled out, the guy's coming across, and, and he goes by and he just lays on the horn and he's looking at me like, you are such an idiot. And I'm thinking to myself, that guy thinks I'm an idiot. I need to do something about that. So I follow that guy all the way, all the way down Brook Hollow to the light that is in front of Bradley Middle School, there where Hymer and Brook Hollow cross each other. And I pull up next to that guy, and I roll down that window, and he won't look at me. And I'm trying to get his attention. He won't look at me. And finally, I just shout at him. Dude, I'm such an idiot. I didn't see you. Thank you for being such a great driver. 
You didn't hit me. I mean, we could have had an accident. Thank you so much. He heard that. And he rolled down his window and he said, hey man, I'm sorry I honked the horn at you. And I said, listen, that was all my fault. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. He goes, hey, nothing bad happened. We'll go our separate way. And I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. That doesn't come natural, I'm just saying. <laughs> That's why we have to do number four, and that is pray. We have to pray to put this into practice. When is the last time you got up early in the morning and you said, God, in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit and your word bouncing around in my head and my soul, help me this day to not be judgmental. That's a serious prayer. We pray for our eyes. We pray for our eyes that we will see each and every human being as a son of God by creation who is in need of the son of God for salvation. We pray for our mouth that words of contempt and the words of gossip will be stricken from our conversations and that we will speak the truth in love in order to build up rather than to tear human beings down. We pray for our face. We pray for our face that the expressions of disgust and indifference and disdain will be wiped away and the light of his face will be seen in ours. We pray for our feet to make the first move and to go in love towards those who think we are the enemy just as the Messiah made the first move in love toward our world as a man even though we would crucify him. We pray for our knees to not be stiff in pride but to bend in humble service to meet the needs of those around us. And we pray for our hands to not be clenched in a fist but to be open in order to receive those who need the gospel. We live in a community that is saturated in contempt. We are surrounded by people drowning in judgment and suffocating in condemnation. And they are desperate for a word of hope that someone, that someone will give that word to them, that there is hope for their lives and embrace them rather than reject them. We are the people who have been transformed by grace. The blessing of the kingdom of God has come inside of us. And we are redeemed by love. We are the people who shout that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are the ones in Revelation 22. We are that bride who says with the Spirit, Come, not go away, but come. We are the ones who hear and say, Come. We are the ones who say to the thirsty, Come, we say with the angel, come to the feast. Enjoy your life with Christ. Know what you can be as a human being through his power and in his kingdom. Know what it means to live a life as a person who has been filled to blessing to the point that they, it's not just they can't hold anymore, but that they overflow with blessing. And that they see the log in their own eye. And it's okay. It's okay that you have a speck because I know who I am. And I'm here to help you and you're here to help me. And that's what it means to be a church. And that's what it means to be a community of believers, of kingdom people who represent the Jesus who said to that woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Who is able to say to that known sinner in Luke's gospel, 
whatever it is he said to her that didn't drive her away, but then the room full of Pharisees is able to go in and to take her life savings, that nard, that ointment, that perfume, that oil, and dump it on his feet and weep at his feet and dry his feet with her tears. He says that that social misfit, diminutive Zacchaeus, tax collector, come out of the tree. Because I'm going, he invites himself to eat at somebody's house. That's who we are. It's not that we don't see sin and no sin and righteousness and unrighteousness and false and not and truth. It's not that we don't see that. But we represent a kingdom that opens its door wide for people. For people in this community. And so we pray for our feet and our hands and our heart and our mind, our elbows, our knees. We pray for our selves in our church to be the kind of people that represent the Messiah this way in our community. Amen. Stand and sing. Yeah.